Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday. It's the 6th of September and this is Peter Lewis with the latest business and finance news on Money Talk, one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Reserve Bank of Australia maintained its cash rate at 4.1% during its meeting yesterday, extending the rate pause for the third successive month in line with market expectations. The RBA board said that inflation in the country had passed its peak, but the reading remains too high and will stay so for some time yet. Growth in China's services sector has decelerated to its slowest rate since coronavirus controls were lifted in December, according to a private survey released Tuesday. The Kaishin China General Services PMI declined to 51.8 in August from 54.1 in July, below forecasts of 53.6. It was the eighth straight month of expansion in services activity, but the softest pace in that period, and business sentiment weakened to a nine-month low. Business activity in Hong Kong remained in contraction in August, but the pace of decline slowed. The S&P Global Hong Kong PMI increased to 49.8 in August from 49.4 in July. This was the second straight month of falls in private sector activity, with new orders remaining weak for the second month in a row amid a renewed fall in new business from China, and business sentiment weakened to its lowest level since January 2021. Oil prices rose above $90 a barrel for the first time in 2023 on Tuesday as Saudi Arabia and Russia said they would extend their voluntary production cuts until the end of the year. Brent crude oil settled up 1.2% at $90.04 a barrel, breaking $90 a barrel for the first time since November. And Brent is up about 15% now since the cuts took effect at the start of August. On today's programme, I'm joined by Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore, and Sean DeBose, CIO at Interlink Asia Pacific. And with a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks fell on Tuesday, the first day of trading this week after the Labor Day weekend, weighed down by a big jump in crude oil prices. The S&P 500 dropped 0.4% to close at 4,497. The Dow lost 196 points, or 0.6%, to finish at 34,642. The Nasdaq Composite edged down 0.1% to settle at 14,021. Treasury yields rose as economists worried that the jump in oil prices would put upward pressure on inflation. The yield on the 10-year Treasury surged 9 basis points to 4.27%. And the US dollar index rose 0.6% to 104.78 on Tuesday. That's the highest level since March, following disappointing PMIs for China and Europe, which reignited concerns about the global economy. The offshore yuan weakened half a percent towards 7.31 per dollar as investors reacted to the Kaishin survey showing China's services sector growth slow to an eight-month low in August. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composites fell 0.7% to 3,154, retreating from a one-week high. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index led losses in Asia, falling 387 points, that's 2.1%, to 18,457 and erasing most of its gains made a day earlier after news of fresh government support for the property sector. 
the Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index declined 2.8% as investors took profits from the previous session's gains. The tech index tumbled 2.6%. Shares of Country Garden fell 1% in Hong Kong, recovering from steeper losses earlier in the day, after Reuters reported the company had made coupon payments on two US dollar bonds. The home builder is reportedly seeking to extend payments of another seven onshore bonds. And futures markets are pointing to a decline of about 0.1% for the Hang Seng at the open. Looks like the index is going to start the day at about 18,440. You can get more details on the latest market movements, which you'll find in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests for this Wednesday morning. We have with us Louisa Fock, who is China Equity Strategist at Bank of Singapore. Good morning, Louisa. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Sean Debeau, who is CIO of Interlink Asia Pacific. Good to see you again, Sean. Good to be here. Thank you. Let's start with the China markets because it's been a pretty hectic week, Louisa, hasn't it, for, for the markets here? We've had uh, the authorities in Beijing step in to try and support, first of all, the property market with some uh, mortgage rate cuts and also so cutting the down payments and then also trying to support the renminbi um, as well. What do you make of these support method um, measures and do they change your outlook at all for the China markets? Uh, thank you, Peter. I think uh, each of these moves on a standalone basis uh, would be probably regarded as a piecemeal one, with probably the exception of the nationwide uh, demand stimulus. Now, put it this way, um, I think the cut of the second home mortgage down payment ratio and also uh, for the mortgage rate probably come in better than market expectation, uh, despite the fact that we do call for more demand signs stimulus will be required to stabilize the property market demand. Now, this round, over the past week or so, we see a series of measures encompassing the physical, monetary, and also real estate sector-specific measures, uh, which is uh, sending a very clear signal to stabilizing growth. Um, I think it would be positive for the sentiment. Having said that, I think the market is uh, looking for more um, evidence in terms of how these measures are going to play out, signaling a stabilization and also a recovery of the economy, as highlighted from a series of all these high-frequency um, data. And as such, uh, we still believe that it will take time to, and from an equities market perspective. Therefore, we think it will support the trading bank, but the market is likely to trade in a range bound until there's a more clear evidence highlighting that, you know, these measures are starting to play out. Sean, what what are your thoughts? August was a pretty grim month, wasn't it, for Chinese stocks, particularly here in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng Index ended the month 8.5% lower. The problem is... Every time we see a new measure announced by Beijing, we sort of get a, a bounce in the market, but it just doesn't seem to last. It just seems to run out of steam very, very quickly. What is it that you think is going to get this market back on its feet um, and, and you know, back into positive territory? 
I think there's only one word that counts here, and that's confidence. I think that there is a lack of confidence by retail purchasers of residential property in China. They want to make sure that their investment today will be meaningfully larger in the coming 10 and 20 years, because in general, this is their largest asset in their portfolio for a residential family in middle class or high income in China. So we don't have that strength of confidence yet. And until we do, I think exactly as Louisa say, the market's going to be range bound until we can see signs that gives the average family in China the confidence to go and put their uh, life savings into a risk asset. So we're gonna, they're going to do lots of measures on the edges, such as cutting rates, cutting deposit, uh, deposits required, and things of that nature. But we really need to see a meaningful change in the nature of the sentiment in to see higher confidence. I think that also is on the backdrop of this meaningful change that's taking place over many years, which is the move in the nature of revenue at municipal levels for the government, uh, municipal governments in China. We're moving from them making most of their revenue in an unpredictable way through land sales and moving towards uh, the global standard of property tax. That is very disruptive, and we are in the midst of this major disruption. So mm. confidence and in the midst of a big disruption. Price confidence amongst consumers for, for their homes is going to take a long time to build, isn't it? Because I think they've been pretty shocked by the fact that, first of all, they're seeing the value of their homes decline. This is not something that they're used to, is it? It's not something that they've seen um, in the past. And it's also combined with a lot of other things. You know, confidence in the economy is pretty low. Um, they're worried about losing their jobs. They're seeing youth unemployment at record highs. This is all going to take quite a while isn't it, to, to sort of rebuild. It's not just going to be one measure or two measures from Beijing. I agree, and I think that Louisa outlined that as well. Like that we are in a range. We're, we're trying to go on baby steps as they try to, to grow the confidence level. This is not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in this calendar year. And as a result of that, we're going to see this kind of a very muted trading. We also have to think about the fact that we are uh, having very limited uh, incremental investment from global investors into China, be it on the A-share market or on the H-share market, because geopolitical risk is very high. The rhetoric is out, really out of control in Washington. Mm -hmm. And so that is really curtailing the incremental dollar moving from global funds into China. We need to see those things change. Louisa, I, I want to be contrarian. I know people are very be bearish at the moment on the China markets. Uh, confidence is not great. People are very negative about the outlook. Tell me about the bull case. Is, is there a bullish case for investing in China right now if I want to be, say, more contrarian than perhaps other people? Um, okay, right now uh, at Bank of Singapore, we have a neutral recommendation on uh, uh, China. But I think if uh, to look through, it doesn't mean that there's no investment opportunities. I think three things that I would like to highlight. First of all, uh, given the backdrop that we have discussed, I think the market will still focus on fundamentals. And I think at this result season, there's a very clear, uh, strong broad-based beat in terms of earnings from the internet and platform companies. And the beat is both uh, in the top line and also at the bottom line as well. Mm. And I think this is like a very, the, the market or investors need to see these uh, concrete evidence. Um, and I think this is uh, worth interesting to monitor because despite the macro 
challenges or headwinds that we have highlighted, they still beat expectations. And I think this is a very strong case and worth uh, monitoring because after all, these industry account for close to one third from an index weight perspective. So as and when the market uh, dynamic shift, uh, they, they may be look interesting. And also from a valuation perspective, uh, they are definitely not uh, demanding uh, versus what they managed to deliver. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, yes, all these geopolitical tensions and macro backdrops, and it definitely takes time for the easing measures to play out. But I think there are still um, this group of what we call quality defensive uh, that investor could focus on. And they are, for instance, like the telcos, which they have strong, highly visible cash flow. Uh, very decent, uh, very well and strong balance sheet. And at the same time, they also uh, give out very relatively high dividend uh, from this perspective, which is backed by a very solid cash flow. So I think these group of quality defensive uh, can, can also will be interesting as well. Sean, the market is cheap, isn't it? I mean, if you look at it overall, I mean, the the relative underperformance of China now compared to the US is at its lowest since 2001. And the, uh, the, the next month's forward earnings, 12 months forward earnings for China, MSCI China, under 11 now almost double that in the US. So if you wanted to be contrarian and you were a value investor, would you not be tempted to look at China and say, despite all the problems, uh, this is priced in, this is a cheap market? So you're absolutely correct. At 11 times, we are well below the uh, five-year norm of roughly 15 times forward-looking earnings on China market. Um, But I think that what one would do if you're looking to start picking up at this point is to very much look at sector-specific and within that stock-specific. Louisa highlighted the the safety and the the attractive cash flow that comes out of telco. And uh, I think internet is another very interesting area. We're seeing extraordinary disruption in the semiconductor and the related tech sector. There we have a lot of attractive companies, but they come with them uh, a tremendous amount of policy risk. And so people have to look through that policy risk and look at the underlying. The third area, of course, is consumption. Mm -hmm. Consumption has been very muted, but there are areas, particularly in the service sector, we see that the the PMI number for services is still at above 51, which means there is some demand. So we have to look at very selected securities where we see a change in consumer behavior broadly away from goods and towards services. And that, uh, as a third point, leads area for both sector and stock selective uh, investments to pick up at this particular perspective. Mm. Louisa, where does the currency fit in here? Um, the the the, uh, the PBOC is trying its best to support the yuan at the moment with sort of limited success, isn't it? It, it did manage to to get it up above seven thirty, but it's uh, it's slipping back again um, today because the US dollar really is just so strong against um, everything. What sort of impact does that have um, on the markets? Mm, I think two things worth highlighting. First of all, uh, if if I would have to plot a chart 
uh, for the U.S. dollar CMY and also MSCI China, um, they actually uh, very closely correlates to each other. So, and at this point, I think what the PBOC have done over the past week, sending a strong signal that they are here to uh, defend the currency at around 7.30, that sort of level. So I think uh, it will probably stabilize at around this level. Now, um, uh, the second point in terms of U.S. dollar strength, I think near term is definitely coming in from, from the weakness in the euro as well, because if you look at the DXY index, um, uh, euro plays a, a major uh come in a strong proportion here. So I think uh, that's also a combination. Obviously, um, as we are heading towards like the towards the end of the rate high cycle, despite that we see rates to stay higher for longer, and we do not expect uh, any cut in the rates until second quarter next year. Um, that said, it it's probably will give uh, some support and get more maneuver for the, the for the policymaker in China to play out with some more easing measures going forward. Sean, what, what are your thoughts here? We've got a strong dollar. We've also got Treasury bond yields now um, rallying to 16-year highs. And the, the yield gap between U.S. Treasuries, 10-year Treasuries, and 10-year uh, uh, Chinese government bonds are at record highs now. Where does this all play into the outlook for the, for the markets? I think that we have to look at what is some of the key impacts to this. Looking through to the impacts, I would look, number one, at input uh, costs. Because China is such a large manufacturer factory to the world, uh, seeing the, uh, the the weaker currency that is uh, hurting in terms of domestic profitability because they're still buying a, a vast majority of the commodities in U.S. dollar terms. And it doesn't look like any time soon we're going to see a reversal, say, below 7 Zero, that the mm -hmm. 7.3 seems to be a sufficient range. So that's, that's a real challenge. However, on the other hand, where it is possible for products that are manufactured in China, exported to the world, and they can use raw materials from China, that is a very sector-specific great opportunity because that allows the currency weakness of the RMB versus the U.S. dollar to play as a strength to those manufacturers. These companies have massive operational leverage. So a small change in the rates of exchange and the rates of domestic pricing of commodities, input uh, commodities, versus the global prices makes a big difference to EPS for these companies. So is that what China is going to try and do now? I mean, it's got a vast current account surplus. It can't get domestic consumption going at the moment, despite, um, I wouldn't say its best efforts, some efforts <laughs> that it's made to, um, to do that. Is it, is it going to revert to trying to export again around the world? But particularly when you know, global demand is not particularly strong, how is it going to manage that? Global demand is not strong, but it's certainly not weak, and it's a lot better than people had anticipated six months ago. Mm -hmm. So uh, We also have gone through a destocking circumstance around the world, and particularly in the United States. If we look at inventory level of retailers, we see that we are dramatically at lower inventory days than we were. So this is a very good opportunity for China to use this opportunity to export as we're going into the holiday season. We're at the last push for exports of containers from China into 
both Europe and America. The second thing that we have to keep in mind is there's a global structural change in the way that goods are being manufactured and the theme of French shoring and the benefit that that plays to India and the disadvantage that it plays to China cannot be understated. And so it is not a go-to that we're going to always be able to have everything manufactured in China. And sadly, due to geopolitical and I'd say due to a lot of propaganda in the West, we are seeing an anti-China uh, sentiment. So there are some companies who want to only retail goods that say made in a country other than China, and that is a disadvantage to China. Mm. Now, the good news is that China is col collaborating with a lot of its neighbors, such as Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and that they can do some of the input or beginning level of the manufacturing there, finishing it in other countries, qualify for ma manufacturing status, and that still helps the manufacturer in China. Louisa, how much is the, the geopolitics damaging China? Because as, as Sean mentioned, I mean, a number of companies now are more moving to this China plus one strategy, aren't they? Having Keeping operations in China, but also diversifying to make sure they're not totally uh, dependent upon China. I, th I think the whole shift of the global supply chain uh, has taken place like, you know, two or three years ago. So it has been already taken place. And I think uh, this is not something... Uh, happen overnight because of the weaker economy. So I think that the change has been ongoing and now it's probably uh, going to a stage that it will be able to start slowly making an impact on that. But then I think overall, from a top-down perspective, what we need to see is stabilizing in the earnings growth uh, expectations. Uh, just to take a snapshot, uh, the latest uh, growth earnings growth expectation for MSCI China has come down to around 9 to 10% uh, year-on-year versus if I would look at it at the beginning of the ESA in first quarter this year, it would still be at mid-teens level. So uh, on the macro headwinds that we talk about, there could be still some down downside downward pressure on that and I think from investor perspective especially from a global as an allocator uh, perspective looking at it from a top down uh, these earnings growth um, momentum needs to be stabilized uh, before you know a more meaningful um, uh, uh, fund flows uh, looking into China rather than what uh, we just talk about it looking at selective sectors um, selective companies yeah do you think, Sean, that one of the issues for the Chinese market now is that there is more competition? If you wanted to be invested in Asia, and particularly Asian emerging markets, you had to be in China, whereas now there are other alternatives. And I'm thinking maybe particularly India. Um, India contains a lot of the advantages of China, also the cheapness um, of China, but without a lot of the, the political risk. So is that one of the issues that maybe now, you know, when you compare maybe China with India, people are starting to look and say, well, look, India is a pretty good bet these days. Um, as Louisa said, this is not a trend that started yesterday. It's a trend that's been happening for a while. There is a number of reasons. Let's say from a negative perspective, there is uh, regrettably a number of investors who for political reasons have been told by their asset owners that they are to uh, move away some of their allocation from uh, China. And the obvious allocation for them is places that they can deploy large sums of money. In the private markets, India is extremely uh, desirable for the deployment of private equities. 
But on the public markets, India's market is a fraction of the liquidity and a fraction of the market cap of China. So that still means that India's in the early stage of its development as a quote replacement of, of China. It is a complement to China. And so I think that investors right now, when they're looking from afar at Asia, they would be looking at China, they'd be looking at India, and they'd be looking at Asia. That would be the three areas that they're looking and they group in that way. What is interesting to see is that India has spun out as part of Asia and it's now seen as a very separate and distinct and cr critically important market. Now, if we look at what's going on in India, we can only see exciting things. The market's up 11% roughly uh, this year, other than Japan, which is up about 23% year-to-date. It's got to be the most exciting place to be in Asia right now. We see very strong GDP numbers. We see strong demand. We see strong credit growth formation. So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in India right now that sadly, at the same time, we're seeing the opposite news flow coming out of China. Mm. But still, you can't deploy a billion dollars in India at the rate and the speed and the breadth as you can in China right now. And when you look at you know, some of the data that's coming out of India, like the PMI data that we saw yesterday, I think it showed the fastest export growth on record, on a standalone basis, even if you don't compare India with China. There's some good opportunities there, aren't there? I mean, it's got a growing, uh, a young demographic. It's got um, a growing real estate market. It's got a lot of unbanked who are starting to you know, get into financial services. A lot of potential there. I agree. There's a lot of strength, and we're extremely positive on the outlook on uh, India. Let's just start from the very top. The GDP is likely to come in somewhere between 6 and 7% for the calendar year 2024. That's a very spectacular number that we can see. It is, however, offset by the fact that there's a considerable amount of inflation going on in India. and that's But that's a country that's been used to uh, coping with inflation on a constant base. But what is driving that is that there's just so much demand. And so we see both credit formation and we also see, uh, you know, the most important number to me and uh, when we look at is, is to look at the GST numbers because they have rolled out such a successful and encompassing system for collecting value-added tax on services and goods. We're up 10% year-to-date in terms of that. And that, to me, is a really good uh, look at what's going on in the economy, is that goods and services are roughly selling. 10% more than mm. they were year to date. And that's a really massive number when you consider the scope and the skies of the uh, Indian market. And also, it's got a real estate market that isn't effectively bankrupt. That's another um, another positive as well, really, isn't it? There's a more sort of upward mobility, if you like, people looking to buy homes, and they can still do that uh, pretty cheaply in India. I think that you can purchase an apartment in India at a absolute price that is cheap on a global basis, but it's mm. not without risk. We only have to look back a few years and we saw monstrous bankruptcies that are not too uh, different than what we're seeing in China right now. Um, and so Indian consumers are very hesitant in how they put deposits down, how they purchase in the pre-market. And, and they've also put an enormous amount of regulation. So it's very difficult to buy right now from small and micro developers. People are concentrating on the large banks and the large developers. And that's because th their parents got burnt. And so young couples in India who are moving up the curve are very cautious, as they should be, because this is, you know, it's not that long ago that the news flow was very awful.
Okay. Um, Louisa, tell me about China's economy. We had uh, the services sector uh, PMI yesterday. The Kaishin China General Services PMI declined to 51.8, down quite considerably from 54.1 in July. That's still expanding, isn't it, Louisa? But it is definitely slowing. And it looks like the trend at the moment in India seems to be manufacturing is in recession. Services isn't, but it's sort of slowing towards a sort of stagnating area of uh, area of uh, a level Mm. I think, uh, yes, it's still about 50, but I think uh, the the fall is basically reflecting a combination that what we have just discussed, um, uh, a fading reopening boost that we have seen since first quarter, and also the property market that we also have discussed, and also in combination of like the unemployment issues. So uh, I think that that's what we, we talk about. A lot of these measures are supportive, but together it takes time, um, especially like for instance um, it, it will take time to 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 see an upturn or recovery from a job and income expectations and data perspective but within the service sector um, like like what Sean has mentioned there are selective sub industries that are also uh, worth monitoring, for instance, like the travel and tourism related. And also from a domestic consumption perspective, we started to talk about consumption downgrades. And also for for companies that have like overseas exposure that they also take on quite a significant uh, top line or earnings from their overseas operations as well. One of the problems, one of the worries about this PMI, PMI data is the forward-looking parts of it um, are now in contraction territory. So that's not a good sign for the, the services sector going forward, is it really? Mm, yeah, that is what at the beginning that we talk about. So we expect that the next set of these uh, high-frequency data is probably still remain sluggish before we can see, see all these high-frequency numbers showing signs of stabilization and back on a recovery trend. What does this mean about uh, China's ambitions to eclipse the US as the world's biggest economy? They're talking about by the end of the decade. Presumably, this puts that back a bit. And, and, and does it matter, though? Does it matter whether or not China overtakes the US? Um, I, I think it, the, the, the key is probably at the moment is to stabilize the economy. Like what we have talked about, there are quite a lot of macro challenges for the policymaker to to look into. And uh, f- both from a manufacturing services, real estate, and also uh, from the um, uh, funding, like the local government financial vehicles and all these issues. So not until all these issues, which I do believe, aside from what have been announced, more structural reform will be required before we can see some more sustainable recovery and growth coming back. Sean, does it matter if um, if, if China's GDP doesn't overtake uh, the US by, uh, by the end of the decade? I mean, I know it's something to be fair. It's not just a, a media point. It's something that China themselves have, have been sort of triumphing or, or trumpeting. But nevertheless, presumably, growth is slowing, isn't it? We, we've got to get used to these, uh, a, a new sort of level, if you like, a new paradigm of growth going forward that isn't going to be the explosive levels we've seen over the last three decades. 
Yes, uh, we're not going to see the nominal numbers of growth that we saw in the past, but it's really important to keep in mind the base effect. There was a time where we saw 8 9% growth, but it was after a dramatically lower base, and now we have a much bigger base, as China is a much bigger economy than it was 5 and 15 years ago. Does it matter who is the world's biggest economy? No, it doesn't really mm -hmm. matter. These are the two biggest economies. They're the two most important trading partners. They're the two most important geopolitical political players. These are two very important countries and very important markets. And I think for investors right now, we want to see these two countries uh, having a, a better level of communication, a better level of collaboration. And that is something that would really move the market. Okay, well, it's great to talk to you both. Thank you very much for coming in this morning. You heard there Sean Debeau, who is the CIO of Interlink Asia Pacific, and Louisa Falk, who is China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. <laughs> I'm joined now by Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. Morning, Nick. Good morning, dear. I want to start with Fukushima, this furore um, in China over the Fukushima wastewater uh, discharge and uh, the feeling that uh, people are getting there, that they're going to become irradiated and poisoned pretty quickly. Um, I should mention, you are a nuclear physicist, aren't you? You studied physics, nuclear physics at university, so you are well qualified to talk about this. So tell me the facts as opposed to uh, what we're reading in the press and what the government is saying what what are the facts about this yeah i mean i, I remember back in um 2000 and what was it 11 uh, the top cancer specialist from the uk professor uh, jerry thomas came over and i remember her standing there in the uh, the press club saying i'm embarrassed on your behalf you journalists because of the low quality of your uh, reporting on this you told everyone that fukushima uh, was like uh, chernobyl at most it was three percent of chernobyl and i think this whole issue is very very much the same that uh, uh, we're talking about um 1.3 million tons of water and inside that there are three grams of, uh, of tritium which is a very very puny uh, beta emitter uh, and so um the, the japan's thinking of um because that can't be split out from the water because the tritium's in uh, not h2o but um uh, hto um with uh, with tritium involved in it so it can't be split out um and so they were th um thinking of putting this out over um, over 30 years um now the 13 uh, chinese nuclear plants um discharged more in um in 2021 but the amazing thing is yeah we're talking about uh, 22 terabacarels from from this plant and la hague in france um 500 times as much every year, so uh, 11,460 in the, uh, the most recent years I had numbers for. Um, and it's not as if anyone makes a big fuss about it in, in Europe. So in scientific terms, it's not a problem. And I think the only pushback you get is, what if we don't trust the numbers of the Japanese government? Uh, and the answer to that is, is pretty simple. Well, in that case, perhaps you'll trust the IAEA because they are monitoring it very closely in, uh, in Japan. Mm. And, and it should be pointed out as well, not just France, China also discharges uh, radioactive waste in, into the oceans as well, and also with much higher levels of, of tritium than's coming from the Fukushima power plant. 
Sure. So um, it is standard operating procedure for uh, for nuclear power plants to uh, discharge a certain amount. But you know, let's not pretend that this is um, some evil um, uh, evil thing that doesn't occur in nature. Of course, it does. Um, it, a certain amount of it exists anyway. Uh, and I keep pointing out to people: you're perfectly ha- happy to sit in a, uh, a hot spring and onsen. How did you think that that uh, water became hot? It became hot, not because of residual <laughs> heat from a, a four and a half billion year old Earth, but because the centre of the Earth is hot because of, uh, of nuclear reactions, uh, the decay of uranium being a large part of that. Mm. So, so to be clear, the United Nations, the, uh, the, the Atomic Energy Authority, which is monitoring this, they are saying, based on the data, based on the science, that it is perfectly safe to eat fish and seafood that, that comes from these areas in Japan around the Fukushima nuclear power plants. Well, that's right. So, so recently, um, Japan's prime minister has been eating fish from Fukushima. The uh, the Korean president has been eating fish to to say to everyone it's perfectly safe. But you listen to people saying, well, if it's so safe, why don't you drink the water? Well, of course, uh, two minutes worth of one minute worth of searching on uh, on Google will find you a story of a uh, Japanese uh, cabinet ministry just dipping his his cup in and drinking from the uh, the discharge tanks and that's before it gets heavily diluted before putting into the ocean so uh, yeah it is um, it's a very efficient uh, process the uh, the alps process that's uh, that's taken out the uh, almost all of the radioactive content uh, uh, and what's left is is reasonably safe and then of course it gets um, it flows into the world's second largest o- ocean current uh, was it 50 million uh, um, uh, tons a second uh, uh, ocean current uh, and so um, there it flows east not towards uh, china or korea but flows east uh, away from japan into the vastness of the pacific mm. so what, what the hong kong government says because they banned um, seafood from 10 prefectures around the plant they say that uh, two years is just not long enough to monitor this and see what the long-term um, effects are of of this water so that that's why they've banned um, the, the the seafood from that area what what does the government say to that um, obviously, the government's frustrated about it. I think people on the ground here in Japan are a lot less frustrated about it. Uh, if you look at uh, um, last uh, Friday's uh, Tokyo CPI numbers, price of squid was up 60.5% year on year. So a little bit less demand for it would be really nice. Although, if you look at why the uh, the price is up so much, it's because of illegal fishing by um by certain other uh, countries in in Japanese territory. So the countries that are complaining about it are actually doing the illegal fishing that's uh, that's driving up the price of the thing. So Mm. they're eating it. It might not be uh, badged as Japanese. But it seems to be spreading, doesn't it? There's reports now that Chinese consumers are boycotting Japanese cosmetics because they're worried that uh, putting on Japanese lipstick may give them uh, radiation poisoning. I presume that applies to the women as well. Yeah, I I can see the, um, actually I can't, I mean, obviously um, the um, radiation from uh, from tritium absolutely wouldn't get through your your skin, but um, I I don't know why they think that there's there's ocean seawater in in lipstick. No, no, I I think there's polls say, uh, in polls people say I won't be using their products. 
Um, and experience with these polls in the past is what they say and what they do are very different. Um, people in previous um, spats, people have slowed down their buying of Japanese cars just because they were getting vandalized in the riots. Mm. Uh, but who can tell what lipstick you're wearing? So um, uh, it's quite possible people keep um, keep buying. Certainly the... Um, objection to Japanese is stronger amongst uh, poorer people, and that's uh, an important uh, factor worth watching. It does seem, doesn't it, that this is not just about the science, not just about food safety. There seems to be a political element to this as well. Do you think that, you know, that's part of the reason why we're seeing such a fuss made because of the deteriorating relationships between China and Japan? Well, of course, this has nothing to do with science and everything to do with uh, with politics. Um, so, yes, I think uh, tensions have uh, built up a bit. Um, there is a feeling that uh, perhaps um, Japan has has allied itself a little too strongly with the US in, in uh, keeping um, uh, tech away from uh, from China or the uh, the equipment and um, and electronic materials related to uh, extreme ultraviolet uh, semiconductors and so on. So yes, I think there are uh, attentions between the two, and that's that's what we're really talking about. Um, you know, when, when China had a spat with Australia about uh, wine, it wasn't about wine or about uh, Australia dumping um, low price wine onto the uh, the Chinese market. It, it was about uh, frustrations with other things. Let me turn our attention to a slightly different topic. China's economic slowdown. We're seeing in the PMI data now clear signs that uh, the Chinese economy is slowing. Moody's lowered its growth expectations for China now next year down to 4%. What sort of impact is that having on Japan? Because we're seeing particularly the PMI numbers in in East Asian countries like Japan, Taiwan, uh, like uh, South Korea uh, deteriorating. Are you starting to feel the impact of the Chinese slowdown? Um, <clears throat> I think the honest answer would be no. Uh, if you look at consensus numbers for uh, for GDP, um, so you look at those for all the countries that are strongly uh, tied to China, whether that's South Korea or, or Germany um, or, or Japan, Germany's certainly been hit. Japan, the, the forecasts are getting uh, revised up at the moment and revised up quite sharply, just as those for China have been revised down. If you look at profitability, obviously the profit numbers um, the, the government's numbers for corporate profits, including um, non-listed, those came out on uh, uh, Monday, and those show the uh, the highest profit margins for um, uh, for Japanese companies on record. So, underfoot, Japan's not doing badly, and it's the one place where PMIs are uh, are rising at the moment, while they're um, they're slip sliding away elsewhere. So, no, I think the the simple answer is is Japan's not feeling. Uh, pain at the moment of course it would like china to grow uh, faster uh, that would be uh, good for everyone's demand but uh, um, but japan is is uh, cushioned from this so uh, what about on the export side are exports suffering to china um i, I think if you look at the comp- uh, composition of uh, of exports exports and imports are basically shuttling between Japanese parent and um, and Chinese subsidiary. So we're talking about sales of particular things like uh, machinery. Uh, and that's not an emotional um, uh, buying decision. It's uh, Japan provides something for which there are a few uh, global competitors. 
so you buy it. Um, so in previous spats with China in 2005, 2010, 2012, um, the uh, the tourism was hurt, but the uh, the exports and imports were uh, were unaffected. So it sounds like, from what you're saying, if you want to find a market to play that sort of insulates you from the Chinese slowdown, Japan could be the one in Asia. I think that's right. I think if you look at uh, within Asia, within uh, globally, really, um, you can see uh, GDP forecasts being um, uh, being uh, raised in Japan, just as I mean, Europe is looking really bad at the moment. China's slowing down. Where are you going to put your money? Well, uh, Japan, the um, the profit forecasts just keep re- uh, getting revised up as, as things uh, beat expectations every quarter. So, so if you want to play Japan as a market that's going to be immune from the China slowdown, are there any particular sectors that you should either look at or particular sectors, conversely, that you should avoid? Well, I think, um, I think we're there still saying um, banking sectors looking um, interesting. I think that the, uh, the rates will continue to, uh, to tick up in Japan. Um, I, I think it's mostly on a uh, stock-by-stock basis rather than uh, rather than sectors. I would say generally, though, stay domestic rather than uh, export at the moment, although the, the super weak yen is quite um, helping the exporters also. Nick, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Great to speak. That's Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.